also hate the concept of tips. Like, it's not a tip. I, <laughs> you know, um, pay me. Welcome back to The Drawing Board, a podcast about creative people and how they interact with the world. It's been a little while, but it was time for a new episode, so here we are. You know, the point of this podcast was basically that I wanted an excuse to talk to some of the most creative people I know, and I'm lucky that I've met so many amazing people whose work I've gotten to edit, and one of those people is none other than John DeVore. I met John when I was working at Medium, and then after I left Medium, he asked if I wanted to edit his book. He wanted to do a collection of his essays. So the book is called, and I love this title, uh, it's called Never Cry in a Strip Club, and John describes it as essays for people who are men or have ever met a man. I'm telling you this right now because when John and I sat down to talk, we hit the ground running and we did not stop talking for almost three hours and we had so much to talk about that the freaking name of his book never even came up. So it's called Never Cry in a Strip Club. And just a note as you're listening to this conversation, we recorded this in John's Harlem apartment right next to the one train. I did my best to cut out most of the train sounds, but you will hear the one rolling past at various points throughout our conversation. I think we should just jump right into it, and I will let the man himself do the introductions. Who am I? My name is John DeVore. I am... Oh, fuck, what am I? I mean, you know, on paper, I'm a writer. I am an editor, um, a producer. But in my old age, if you ask me honestly what I am, I would say I am a uh, content creator which is a terrible pair of words that everyone hates, but I've just accepted that that's what I am. Is this growing up is embracing the word content? <laughs> uh, it is not fashionable, mm -hmm. even though it's what we all do. Uh, but, but if I'm honest, yes, I'm a content creator, which means I, I, cr I create multimedia uh, stories for multiple platforms for, you know, in various forms of media. Yeah, I think, uh, my, my website may or may not say that I'm a journalist and, uh, which is true to a certain extent, but sure. Um, you know, I, <laughs> maybe it's just the imposter syndrome, but I look around at, you know, people I've, I've worked with and I'm like, that person is a, a capital J sure. journalist. Sure. Sure. Imposter syndrome, first of all, is very real. Oh, yeah. Secondly, you know, I got into publishing in the late 90s um, in print magazines, actually. Uh, I did not go to J school. I learned journalism as a, as a trade. A bunch of grizzled old editors taught me how not to lie. I mean, there is no journalism license, right? The only thing that qualifies a journalist is that you look in the mirror and you go, I am a journalist. I mean, that's it, right? It's like, a, it's like an actor. It's like, you know, like the only, you are a journalist if you say you are. Yeah, I guess in that way, it's sort of like being an artist or a writer. Although I've also heard people say, you know, that uh, in order to be a writer, you actually have to write things, so. I guess, I mean, but like, again, there's, <laughs> it's not like there's a governing board or like a, you know, um, some kind of guild or organization determining who and who is not a, uh, uh, a writer, but yes, John DeVore, content creator, former playwright. Okay, so 
in your book, one of your essays, you, you talk about um, how you got started writing for like consumer electronics magazines, and then from there worked your way up to writing columns for a men's magazine in the right. early 2000s. But walk me through how you went from being a theater major to I'm going to be a writer and start reviewing consumer electronics. Well, you know, uh, it, this is the story of money. I studied theater. I got a degree in performance and playwriting. I moved to the city in 1996 to, um, you know, to write plays. Um, I, I, it didn't occur to me, especially at that point, how very little money there is in playwriting. Uh, which, funny enough, since then, that has changed. You know, the, the explosion of streaming services and prestige dramas. Um, so I, you know, I moved to the city. I produced a bunch of plays. I lost a lot of money on a bunch of plays. Um, but I got into journalism because I was a, uh, a receptionist. I took a temp job. I was a terrible receptionist. I, was such a, I had no skills. I had to take a class in Microsoft Word where they taught me how to um, cut and paste. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, so I became a receptionist for a small California publishing company. Um, and every day some, when the editors came in, I would be like, hey there, hi there, nice to meet you, how you doing? Uh, you know, I need a job. Um, and eventually uh, one of the editors gave me a shot and he told me to find errors in the day's copy front page of the New York Times. Um, because he wanted to make the point that in an editorial, nothing's ever finished. It's abandoned, right? Like you have a daily or if your magazine, a monthly schedule and you edit up until a managing editor takes it out of your hand. Um, so he was like, find three errors in the New York Times. Uh, and then we can talk about a job. And I found one. Um, I'm not, I'm not particularly good at copy editing. I have, you know, some low simmering sort of learning disabilities. Um, but there, I became a fact checker and I began to work for these, uh, uh, consumer electronics, uh, magazines. And I learned the trade there and the trade was very much devoid of any sort of romance. I mean, I was still making my weird, I made weird theater at night, but I like working for these magazines. And I was very proud when I was 23, 24, I was very proud that that year I was able to put on my taxes writer. You know, I don't believe in good or bad writing per se. I just think that there's writing, you know, you should keep to yourself and writing that you should share. And if it's writing you should share, then maybe that's writing you can make a buck off of. Uh, in a certain way, I think all, all writing is good. Marketing, social media, you know, uh, movie review, whatever, whatever it is, all writing is good. Um, and then, you know, from there, I launched my first website in 1999. I was told by the old men at the consumer electronics company not to take the job that the internet was not going to last and that I would ruin my career. So, content. I mean, it's, it's not sexy, but it does pay the bills. Um, you wrote Consumer Electronics. Not sexy. Pays the bills. And then you went to a men's magazine. Yeah. I launched their website. 
you got to write about boobs and butts and bacon, which is pretty sexy and also pays the bills. Did you feel more inspired by doing that? So the, the magazine that I went to work for, whose website I launched, was the infamous Maxim magazine, uh, a nuclear douchebag publication um, and uh, a cultural event at the time that was huge. I have made comparisons that it is the gender-defining event for men at the time that Sex in the City was for women. You know, you, you can see the current DNA of Maxim in Barstool Sports, in, you know, Fox News, uh, in uh, Joe Rogan. Um, so dirtbag, shitty men's culture is the part of Maxim. Um, at the time, Maxim proved an old publishing adage wrong, which was that men don't read. Publishing, especially magazine publishing, was mostly oriented towards women. And classic men's magazines like Esquire and GQ, uh, while, you know, storied publications with uh, rich literary histories, actually, these were very small circulations compared to almost everything else that was geared towards women. I got the job because a men's magazine was looking for someone who could review tech, who could review gear, and I applied. Um, at one point, I think my aunt told my mom that I was working for a pornographer. But my dad was proud because at that point, Maxim was in the New York Times a bunch because it was making money. And if you're making money, uh, you're good. Um, the rest of the industry hated it. Um, it was a magazine run mostly by uh, a certain kind of Brit who liked me because I had grown up in Virginia and Texas. Uh, and so I knew all of the conservative Southern shitbags that they wanted to reach. I actually knew them. I had partied with them, done drugs with them, and then proceeded to run far away from them to the safety of New York City where I could hang out with freaks and make theater. I, look, was it journalism? Uh, I, I didn't lie, you know. Um, I had written about this occasionally. You had read one essay about it, you know. P part of the DNA of these kinds of magazines was selling, I don't want to say selling sex. There's a way to sell sex in a positive way. I don't even know if these, these magazines sold sex. You know, they sold youth and they sold B-list stars in bikinis. You know, it was patently uh, a sexist. There was a part of me where I rationalized it was all a joke, and then I would tell my theater friends what I did that day. But, you know, Maxim sold, it sold youth. It sold young women. Let me revise, uh, Maxim proved to the market that men would buy magazines. You know, it's not like I was writing short fiction. Um, you know, Maxim had a frat boy humor. It, it was what it was, and I had learned hard lessons about m myself. You know, like, because, you know, like right now, as we have conversations about Britney Spears, right, um, there's some of Maxim in there because, you know, uh, Maxim was part of the broader pop ecosystem that elevated um, young women and then tore them down. Uh, I, look, you know, I remember one meeting, uh, the conversation about, about a photo shoot. This is like a $20,000 photo shoot, which is cheap. Um, and, and, you know, and the question was about cleavage versus butts. 
and what we should focus on. It was like a, you know, it was a table full of, of adults with, you know, money and expectations and responsibilities. And I remember, you know, telling my friends, I was like, our job is to figure out how to give other men boners. I was okay with that. I was like, you know, I was like, that's what we're talking about here, right? I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're doing. And then I was like, do you think the reader knows? Like, like through that cover, I'm telling you, Bubba, what's hot? You know, the, the covers that always sold. And this is when it, my soul began to, to crumble. There's always a 20-year-old beauty queen. Uh, not Angelina Jolie, not Halle Berry. What sold was a young woman because... Uh, there's just something in the lack of a better term, like in the patriarchy, where the message is to to prize youth. But you know, I, that's the patriarchy. I think that's capitalism. I think that is just. I think it's capitalism, and and the patriarchy they go hand in hand. Uh, but prizing youth is something that it's just done. You know. It's, did you say it's dumb? No, it's something that's done. Also, <laughs> also, it's very dumb. <laughs> and, I, and I feel pretty good saying that uh, on a podcast, that uh, capitalism uh, is dumb. There's got to be a better yeah, way. That's okay. I don't have any advertisers. We can say that capitalism is dumb. You know, I have a lot of friends in theater, a lot of friends of varying genders and sexualities and who were all like, what are you doing, John? And I was like, well, what I'm doing is getting free video games, getting free comic books, uh, and having a business card that gets me into any bar or club in the city. Um, so what I'm doing, my artistic, uh, politically right friends, is selling my soul to the devil as what I'm doing. Um, you know, like... A, Clearly, at that Memex, I'm at the height of my drinking, you know. I had a key to a closet. You know how in The Devil Wears Prada, there's the fashion closet mm -hmm. where wonderful Stanley Tucci, right? I love that movie. I love that movie. It's a great film. I will, like, it's like it's, it's up there to me with Ghostbusters where I'm like, oh, it's on? I'll fucking watch it. Anyway... I had the early 2000s dude version of the fashion closet, which was a closet that was filled with liquor, expensive liquor, fireworks, Nerf guns, uh, remote control cars, remote control gliders, lightsabers, like, just, you know, this was in the day when a page of advertising in Maxim was like six figures. So... What does it matter if PlayStation sends a $300 video game? If it gets in the magazine, that, that could be worth tens of thousands of dollars. So, yeah. you know, yes, I sold my soul uh, to the devil. Um, but, yeah, you know, youth culture. Um, whatever that means now. I mean, it still exists and it's still a product. Um, you know, Gen Z's pretty smart, though. Scary smart. And I, I do appreciate how they make fun of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Especially millennials who are like not ready for it, you know. When when when, a, when the Gen Z collectively t rags on on millennials, millennials have no immunity. They don't know what to do. They are, except freak out. As a millennial, are you a millennial? I think it's great. I am. Yeah, I think for a young millennial.
I yeah, I'm I'm inside the the cutoff by a couple of years, okay, but I'm okay. one of the younger millennials. Yeah, I just turned twenty eight. <laughs> How's that feeling? Um, I think in my early twenties, I was and as a teenager, um, I was very preoccupied with growing up and being adult mm -hmm. and doing the, the types of things that adults do and being perceived as an adult. And so anytime anyone would say that I was so young, um, I was indignant at that. And I would say, how dare you call me young? I'm, I'm so mature and grown up. Um, the older I get, the more I take it as a compliment <laughs> that people say I'm young. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> it's, my youth is still there. Hold on to it. Yeah. Um, so I think just seeing that shift in my mindset in and of itself is an indicator to me of my aging, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, that uh, the fact that I am no longer rejecting my youth means that in some sense I am aware of its ephemeral nature more so now than when I was a teenager and I thought that I would be young forever. <laughs> Look, I, uh, age is very personal and it is one of the great relationships you'll have in your life is the relationships you have with who you are now and who you were then and who you think you will be. Um, but it's a, it's a personal relationship. Um, capitalism must turn everything into a product. Everything must have a price tag. So youth is commodified. If you work in media and you make a living, you are obsessed with the 18 to 35 age demographic. There's just something about being in that age range where you're probably a little more vulnerable to what other people think. And so you're therefore easier to sell to. Yeah, I, I think just getting back to your, your collection of essays, which we haven't even mentioned no, we the haven't. title of your book yet. Well, it's because it's not a book yet. It's not a thing. I will come out and I'll say it. Sophia Smith and I uh, know each other. We work together at a place. Uh, and I have been writing essays for a long time now. Um, and a few months ago, I decided, uh, with the blessing of my representation, uh, with my agent, uh, to compile a collection of essays. And I needed... Um, someone to give it a proofread, a copy edit. Um, Sophia had edited my work before. Um, and so I hired you and you did a tremendous job um, editing this uh, uh, collection. Your book was a joy to edit. I always enjoy reading and reading your work and editing it. And um, in the most wonderful time of the year, Yeah. you begin the essay with, this is not a story about Christmas. Actually, that's not true. I lied. I apologize, but I can't promise it won't happen again. This is a personal essay after all, and personal essays are like Christmas trees. A personal essay is what happens when you take an ax to the truth, then stand it up in your window and decorate it with blinking lights and shiny ornaments for everyone to see. And I thought that was a beautiful way, a beautiful metaphor for personal essays. I mean, because you, you tell the truth, but then you, but you lie, but you're, you're very self-aware and transparent and 
confessorial, is that a word? About your lies. And um, you're very vulnerable about them and you lay them out on the table, which I just thought was wonderful. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful to read. So the way that you came up in the journalistic world, learning not to lie, but also learning how to market sex to 18 to 35 year old men <laughs> was maybe a way to learn how to, I don't know, dress up the Christmas tree of youth or capitalism or whatever it is. And I feel like you took those things and wrote personal essays with those tools. How do you feel about that? I have a couple thoughts. Uh, and the first, you know, let's go back to the journalism and, and the don't lie thing. I have had a wide ranging media career. I've worked in radio, I've worked in TV. Uh, I recently worked in uh, big city newspapers. And I firmly believe that journalism is a talent. You can go to J school and you can learn uh, how to be a journalist. You can be me and learn it as a trade, essentially be an apprentice. But there are some people who are just born and bred journalists. They are socially awkward. They hate bullshit. They love talking on the phone. If you are a if you want to be a journalist, and I don't care what age you are, I don't care if you are a a phone adverse twenty two year old Gen Z TikTok influencer, if you don't on some level like getting on the phone and talking or going to somebody, then you're never going to be a journalist. Uh, uh, but I just want to say that I, I I don't have that talent. I have that discipline. I know the craft. I was a fact checker. I've been a business reporter, a tech reporter. I still dabble in entertainment journalism. Um, but there are just some people who I think have just a natural talent for calling bullshit. And you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're always the greatest writers, because I don't think being a beautiful wordsmith is what makes a good journalist. You know, uh, a good journalist is part romantic. A good journalist also knows that people will always want to pay for good information. You know, a lot of what we call clickbait, a lot of the a lot of the content that fuels the internet is really low quality, low calorie information. You know, um, rarely does a piece of well vetted, consequential, interesting journalism not drive traffic. But that shit's hard. And I am not a great journalist. I'm a very mediocre journalist. Now, you mentioned um, the most wonderful time of the year. That's an essay that I wrote a long time ago. That started out as a play, as a monologue, in an evening of Christmas-themed one-acts. Uh, it was performed at the Brick Theater in Williamsburg a theater that I have had almost close to a 20-year relationship with. I've produced a bunch of plays there. Um, there's another essay in that collection that you edited called Son of Pong. And that started out almost 10 years ago as a one-person play that I performed at The Brick. And in 2014, you know, I guess I was in L.A. at that time. 2013, I was working for Conan O'Brien uh, on his website. And I loved these plays that I'd written. And their plays, they are ephemeral. And so I retooled those monologues into essays and published them. And they both, in different ways, went viral 
via Medium, which at the time uh, was so early. Um, it was before the paywall. It was even before uh, they had made a bet, an ill-advised bet on advertising. Um, but it was a site at the, at, that had high virality. Um, and so these pieces went viral. Uh, uh, but it was a big moment for me. Look, I've launched 30 websites. I've done a lot of humor websites. I mean, I, you know, like I worked for Comedy Central. I, I've just done a lot. I've produced a lot of weird stuff. But it was at that point where uh, I thought, oh, these two worlds are coming together. Like, I, I write monologues. And especially on Medium, they're monologues. You know, which is sort of more free-form sort of uh, essay. So that's content, right? And I, look, I've had some success with essays. Uh, I've had them published paces. I've won some awards. Um, you know, I still write on Medium because the market, as of right now, doesn't 100% support or want what I'm writing. But, you know, the market also doesn't want, like... <laughs> Well done, long form journalism. So you know the the market is dumb, um, but it is what it is. You know I still have friends that produce experimental theater and they do it. They lose money. It's obscure, but they do it. They love it. I think that that is a big part of being a creative is doing it even if or when you're losing money doing it. You have to be honest with yourself. It's like I said, like, it's like, you know, there's writing that should be read and writing that should be kept to oneself. The unhappiest people I have known are those that make small, obscure art while wanting to make money. Now, like, you know, you can either, you can either chase fashion or you can do what you do and gamble big and hope that fashion catches up to you. Right? You chase fashion, I think that's completely fair, but you just need to be honest with yourself as a creative, you know, whether or not you want to make money or not. You know, if you want, sorry, goddamn one train. Um, if you want to make money, make money, you know, like, like you, you, you have to produce what the market wants. Or you have to, you have to maybe guess a little. You have to decide if, if you want to hop on the content train. One of the biggest cultural changes that I've encountered is, so if you are a so-called Gen Xer, if you're my age, you grew up in a decade where selling out was wrong. And then, either refreshingly or not, the next generation was like, fuck it, sell out at all costs. You remember that indie band from many years ago called Grizzly Bear? Sure. Right. So, and they had a they had a hit indie song called Two Weeks that blew up and became kind of top 40. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, I don't even remember when that was. Maybe 2008? Yeah, right. So, so the window between when I heard, hey, check out this new Brooklyn band, and, oh, is that Two Weeks in a Toyota commercial? Was like much smaller than, you know, like it was, it was truncated. Yeah. And I remember being like... Where am I on this? Fucking sellouts, but also, I wonder if that's a six-figure deal. I mean, you know. <laughs> um, uh, and I wonder if we're getting to a point, too, now where, you know, we have had many cycles of influencers where my life is content, where my, where, where my life is selling out. If I can 
get a, a sponsorship because of my toddler, I'm gonna do it. So I'm just wondering if it's coming around again, just in time for my my grouchy old age. Yeah, I mean, I think millennials have rebranded selling out as the creator economy, or the influencer economy, rather. The creator economy, which I'm currently involved in, is, it's rough. It is rough. And it's not working. You know, what Substack did was beat Twitter. Substack went to a bunch of big Twitter personalities and said, we know a way for you to monetize your Twitter following. For some of you, in a substantial way. And Twitter was too slow with that stupid tip jar. I also hate the concept of, of tips um, in general. Like, it's not a tip. <laughs> I, you know, um, pay me. Um, yeah, the creator economy is, yes, that's interesting. So you're saying that uh, the creator economy, millennials look at that negatively the way that I might have looked at selling out negatively? Or no, I think that we have embraced the concept and we view it to the point positively. Okay. I think that millennials rebranded selling out as something positive and call it the influencer economy. Yeah, okay. Economy I, I'm conflicted by that because like I came to this city with jack shit and with no connect. That's why I love this city. Um, and uh, the only people when I was coming up who sneered at selling out had connections and had money and had parental money and parental support, you know. So, so anyone who's hustling has my respect, you yeah. know. Um, um, but then the conversation is how exploitive are the platforms participating in the creator economy? And the answer is not great, right? Yeah, I think that it's it's hard to find a, a non-exploitative platform in the creator economy. And also, I mean, to your point, you know, people who move somewhere like New York to try and make it without a safety net don't have the luxury to opt out of selling out sometimes. I mean, if you get the opportunity, you have to take that or... Or what? Or, or leave the city, you know, because you can't afford it because you didn't take that opportunity to quote-unquote sell out. Well, that's the interesting thing, though. It's like, you know, everyone wants the prize is to sell out on your terms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I wonder if I'm broken by this <laughs> entire industry. But, like, you know, like the pandemic has been a time where I'm forced to slow down. You know, my... Ex uh, families from Montana, and I'd had some opportunities uh, to go and visit uh, Montana, which I'd never done before. A bunch of times, actually, I got to know the state, and we would drive through these lovely little cities in the middle of fucking nowhere. And I, we would drive through, and I'd be like, "I should just move here and open a theater company." Yeah, right. So there's a bigger conversation about how much money is enough what is valuable what is not valuable what is selling out what is not selling out one of the co-creators of the brick in williamsburg is a uh, very successful uh, lawyer uh, you know he's also a guy who i have seen naked multiple times because he does really intense bizarre physical performance art um, and he's a beautiful actor but like that's selling out you know uh, the lawyer part sure but like not in his art He's making the art, you know, and he's making art with friends. He's making art with people who he loves. 
and he's making art that speaks to him uh, uh, and to his community. And if you're lucky enough to uh, go and see experimental theater in Brooklyn, which I recommend, The Brick, uh, The Bushwick Star, you know, um, maybe it'll be meaningful to you. Uh, and then there's the whole influencer world, which, yes, people look up to that, right? Like, you know, I'm sure that there are people who, when I'm like, I'm a content creator, they'd be like, that's cool. I'd love to meet those crazy people, uh, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I heard, I don't even know what the percentage is, but it's some crazy high statistic of 16-year-olds who say that they want to grow up to be YouTubers. Yeah, and sure. It, and that's, you know, like a viable career path. Like, no lie, it is. I, and you know, and but it's I, aspirational for a lot of them. I mean, YouTube is the pinnacle. That's like the daddy platform. Yeah, the what? <laughs> It's like the daddy of all the content platforms. Of all the creator content platforms, absolutely. You know, is there another social media platform that has produced a, a Bo Burnham or a Justin Bieber, you know, or, or stars who made the jump to other media and made money there as well, right? Yeah, YouTube, YouTube is it. I think you know Twitter has produced stars, but none. But Twitter doesn't. It's not a place where you have been able to make money. There are people making serious money, right, on on YouTube. Oh yeah, and I think TikTok now as well. Yeah, so TikTok, I'm obsessed with. TikTok helped me survive the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful social media platform because it does not. I have no no. I'm not compelled to create. Just consume. I think I just, that's. A, I just plug in and I, scroll, and it, I don't need to interact or. No, it's great. Anything. The algorithm just feeds me what it is apparently that I want, which is elaborate breakfast sandwiches and teenagers performing uh, one-person versions of Sweeney Todd. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, this is everything I want. Um, they, but they have an interesting, right? So their agreement, though, is that, you know, they have a uh, creator content fund that mm -hmm. you can opt into after 10,000 followers. Yep. Uh, some of these people are just, some of the brands are directly connecting with these creators and they're making fucking commercials. Yeah. In their feed. That are hilarious. That are, that literally... Make me want to buy Doritos. Yeah. You know, there's this gay North Carolinian uh, or, or, or Tennessean singer-songwriter dude who is fucking also hilarious, and he eats Doritos. And I'm like... I, I could it. go for some Doritos I'm, right You now. know, like, it's, 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 it was funny because I'm just like, you know, does, does advertising work? And then I'm in a bodega, and I'm like, oh, yeah, ranch. Ranch Doritos. <laughs> Kevin likes those. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, talk about selling out. I think it's brilliant the way that they do these product placements. I mean, I, I can't help but think of Garth in Wayne's World with, you know, the full Adidas tracksuit. Oh, that whole shtick. Yeah. Oh, what a wonderful movie to reference. <laughs> but now it's like, that's the, that's the I mean, Gen Z dream. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, a few years ago, my, my, my last full-time job was making a print magazine for a mattress company. That's right. You know, I, like during one meeting, I made a joke about how I was like, pretty soon we're going to be a, a magazine company with a mattress side business. <laughs> and everybody was like, that's not funny because they're like, we fucking love this business. And they should. Um, you know, my, my core pitch to them was in the, in the wild of media, of the Internet, brands and publishers are in competition for attention. 
And so consumers actually, younger ones especially, are so sophisticated. They will let you sell to them so long as you don't waste their time. So entertain them, inform them, hire storytellers, uh, because to a lot of these consumers, they don't see brands or publisher. Like Esquire might as well be uh, Airbnb, you know, like, uh, you know, like Netflix, you know, they're all, it's all the same fucking shit. Um, this is a little bit of a change of topic, but you mentioned earlier that some of the unhappiest people that you knew were the people who were trying to make weird art and hoping that it would be successful. And I want to talk about happiness um, because you write a lot about a lot of heavy topics in your essay collection. I mean, there's addiction, loss, body image issues. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like writing these things was part of a healing process for you? Did you feel compelled to write about these things as a way to grapple with them? Uh, was it more of a write what you know type of situation? Was it all of the above or something else? Um, first off, you know, I, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober for 11 years. The recovery narrative uh, is kind of boring. You know, I think there's a, a, a penchant to make it a redemption arc. And, you know, the story of an alcoholic is uh, every day you start at zero and you try and stay sober. But a 12-step program really forces you to be brutally honest with yourself and to look at things the way that they are instead of the way that you want them to be or wish that they were. And that's very hard to do. And so the unhappiest people in the world are those who are unable to be honest with themselves. I know plenty of artists who don't make a lot of money and maybe they have two jobs, maybe they live in inexpensive places. I know too many people who don't make a lot of money who are happy making their art. Um, unhappy people, and I have been unhappy. My drinking years were very unhappy. I, I am at my most unhappiest when I am not honest about myself. Um, now to your second question, we're getting back to the question about personal essays. <laughs> I wrote a men's, I wrote a weekly uh, sex and relationship column for a feminist pop culture site. Uh, called the Frisky, which was like um, imagine Jezebel, but also like Us Weekly. Um, okay. um, it tried. It was it was passionately feminist and ready to scrap, but it also loved celebrities. You know. Um, anyway, uh, this was during the golden age of exploitative first person women's confession essays. So. It, my, my first sort of like essay was in that time of like Exo Jane and, you know, um, where a lot of women were exploited. They were encouraged by editors to, you know, cut themselves open and splatter on the page. My essays are, you know, I am commodifying my experiences. Um, writing is not therapy. You know, therapy is therapy. You know, some of the pain in those essays, a lot of time has passed. And sometimes I've written in the heat of the pain. And so I want to, like a good player, I move somebody. I want to give somebody emotion. I want 
to make someone feel sad. So, you know, I think I'd written in one essay that, you know, memoir, which I'm a big fan of, but memoir is, you know, the truth after three drinks at an airport bar. You know, I change some names, I, I, I truncate some moments. All of it is true, uh, but I'm telling a story. I'm trying to make a feeling, you know, that, that essay, Why Men Drink, where I'm like, I don't know why. You know, I wrote that because I want some dude who is struggling to read that and not feel like a freak. Uh, uh, I, I, if I were to teach a, a personal essay class, I would, you know, it's not therapy. It's like what I had said. There's writing that should be read and writing that should be kept to oneself. And there were some people who I saw, some women, some very talented people, who were encouraged for clicks to share that which should have been kept to oneself. Mm. You know, there are some traumas that you need to either have distance from or you need to be like, I am commodifying this. I am dramatizing this. I am cannibalizing it. You know, and you should ask yourself, why? Why am I doing it? But I, I know a lot of people who were, who were gently pushed into revealing things and making public pretty raw feelings that they should not have. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's a whole generation of writers who I think regret things that they, essays that they wrote in the, in the, ten, in the 2010s. Mm. Uh, less literary or journalistic and more of a spectacle. Sure, right. Exploitative. I mean, there's still a whole um, industry that would be more than happy for you to take something very painful um, and turn it into clicks. I think that that existed even before the 2010s. I remember as early as the year 2000 even reading my best friend's older sister's issues of Seventeen magazine. And the parts that we would always flip to first were the like real life stories mm-hmm, from mm-hmm, teenage mm-hmm. girls, um, and it was always just these like salacious, drama riddled. You know, I didn't know I was pregnant for eight months. Uh, you know, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever. Like I don't even remember any of them, but they were always like these crazy real life stories from teenage girls about, you know, life issues. Right. And um, that was what we craved, more than the, you know, makeup tips or fashion trends. It was like... Or, or boys. Yeah, it was like, give me drama. That's a great point because, you know, there's also that whole world, too, of essays that it's not just trauma. It's like um, a writer will have a, an offensive opinion. Or something that is that an editor should know is bad, but is like, okay, sure, write it. But yeah, well, it's drama. I said I had done radio, yeah. and I had done uh, talk radio, late night talk radio on Sirius for men. It was a fucking nightmare. Um, I was drunk the whole time. The guys were douchebags. Um, I interviewed tons of celebrities, uh, and I made fun of men. My, you know, I had a, a, a co-host named Diana who I'm still friends with, and all we did was make fun of guys. Like, I told her our mission was to uh, destroy all boners. So we would, like, you know, we would have women come on, and we would just talk about anything, everything that wasn't sexy. Um, and, it, and, and when we did that, when we had a beautiful woman come in, and we talked about, like, you know, body odor, 
uh, or like you know probiotics. Um, the lights, the, the the phones would light up. Anyway, what the radio taught me, what talk radio taught me, made me a better blogger. And so talk radio is hours and hours and hours of shit to fill. Like it's terrifying to fill four hours a night with content. And so what talk radio teaches is drama, hot takes, how to go on the air. And literally I was taught how to go on the air and go, oranges are the best fruit, the only fruit. If you don't like oranges, you're an idiot. That's the only, you know, and then a caller, I like apples, you're a fucking moron. Only oranges, only oranges. Oranges are the best. There should be no other fruits. And I, I remember distinctly one day, my co-host came in and I, you know, I, I forget, maybe she had just been on like a bad date maybe, or maybe she had broken up with someone that wasn't very serious. And we both thought, oh, thank God, we have something to talk about. Um, and then I realized that we were in danger of creating drama in our real lives in order to fill this bottomless hole of radio airtime with drama. That is the internet. Drama, drama, drama. Um, That's uh, YouTube, too. I mean, with all these vloggers, it's like, right. if you're creating content out of your life, you need interesting things to happen in your life. And I don't know if you saw this on the internet recently. There was, I don't even remember her name because it doesn't fucking matter. Um, if you're listening to this episode, I guess you can go Google her. But some irrelevant YouTuber um, was in the news again recently because she put her dog down and like vlogged about it and had this whole like sort of influencer style photo shoot on her Instagram of like the dog's last day. And then they put their dog down and it was so sad because it was a perfectly healthy dog that I think had like some aggression issues. We don't need to talk about animal death if it's I mean, I, I was enraged about it. But it was this I, thing uh, of like... Did you see me? I'm, oh, I'm already like, let's find her and yell at her. Yes. Um, and, of course, the inner... I mean, this is like... I cannot wait to look this up. <laughs> yes. Please, please do, but be in a good mental state when you uh, do because uh, it, it took a lot from me. And, you know, don't watch her YouTube video because she's making Google AdSense money off of it. That's the other thing. She monetized the video, which is... Talk about, you know, creator economy and selling out and um, monetizing just every moment of your life, including what should be, you know, one of the worst days. Uh, anyway. Wow, fascinating. That's, but that's when things get dangerous. I was about to say the other thing, you know, uh, beefs. You know, be <laughs> beefs rule radio. Sirius was such a crazy company. But I was so new to it. And... After a few weeks, I would hear that the mor uh, this morning show was making fun of me. And then I heard that this afternoon show was like, he'll be fired in a month. And I didn't know any of these people. And I'm like, what are they doing? I'm dying. It hurt my feelings. So like Substack and Twitter and YouTube is nothing but beef. Maybe that's what I'm doing wrong. I just need to beef more. I should find somebody at Medium, which, you know... <laughs> Really, to be honest, it's one of the nicest companies I've ever uh, worked with. I, the, the amount of nice people that I've met there is eerily bigger than other media companies. So I should just pick the, you know what, I'm just going to randomly beef Harris. I'm just going to randomly just be like, you know, fuck you, Harris. <laughs> Harris just randomly. Shout out to Harris, who is the sweetest person in the what, world. Sweetest 
one of the best editors I ever worked with, truly. <laughs> but I'm just going to start a random beef with him. What a piece of shit. I hate that guy. <laughs> the worst. I hate that guy. See, that's the internet. Just no, no rhyme or reason. Just start beef with the nicest person possible. Um, you know, I think the flip side of it is wanting to make content or art and not having anything interesting to go off of. I mean, do you think you can make, do you think you can write good, interesting things without going through horrible traumatic events? And if so, how? I, you know, I mean, the answer absolutely is, is, is yes. No, you don't have to mine your experience to tell a story. Um, helps on the internet, you know, there, there's a, there's a writer, she wrote a couple of wonderful, she writes a bunch of wonderful essays on Medium, Jennifer Barnett, and she tweeted the other day one of Nora Ephron's essay collections, and, you know, Ephron is peerless, um, and, you know, her essays were these super smart, super breezy meditations, feminist, but not, you know, but like that was, that's one part of this, it's just wonderful essays, and I think Jennifer was like, or market for this anymore uh I, I i don't know i mean there's a whole world of essays that are that can be quiet that don't have to mine your pain um the, it's the playwright in me it's the dramatist in me it's the poet songwriter in me that wants to write an essay that is just sad <laughs> I, you know i've worked in comedy a lot i've written comedy uh, but I, I don't love comedy. I love I, I love sad movies. I love sad songs. I love melancholy. <laughs> I, I'm a big old uh, goth kid. I think there's a fine line between humor and melancholy. Yeah, I guess that's right. I yeah. feel like there are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm yeah. a goth kid at heart. I mean, same. And I love dark humor. And part of why I ask you if you have to write about pain or, or if there are other ways to pull words out of your brain is um, because I'm always curious about people's creative process because I struggle with my own and being prolific, which I, don't, I never feel like I'm prolific enough. And I always wonder, you know, if Prolific is overrated. It is. Uh, but you have to create what moves to you. You really do whatever that is and that's part of knowing the difference between what should be shared and what should not be shared but you have to know what moves you and you have to know how what you want to move uh, in other people because that's going to determine what stories you chase and what people you talk to how do you figure out what is writing that should be shared and what is writing that should not be shared i have notebooks of stuff that should not be shared me too. And, and well, I mean, but that's that's the question of what is therapy. It, it is good to write for yourself, and what I think people call bad writing is writing that should be kept to oneself. Writing that is uh, not fully cooked, that has not been considered, that is raw pain, that is immature. You know, as an artist, you're trying to wrestle with emotion, not be overcome, not be wrestled by emotion. Like, you know, my sobriety moves me deeply. Yeah. The, the gratitude that I have 
the sadness that I have about the time that I wasted, not just the people that I wronged, but if one is going to genuinely learn how to love oneself, one has to, at some point, know that you also wronged yourself. And it's part of the artist's work to find what what moves you, right? And not, not just in the moment, but like what are, what are the things that move you? Yeah, I wanted to ask you actually about creativity and sobriety because I feel like drugs and alcohol are so highly romanticized in the creative process. Oh, for sure. That when you step away from that, um, there's almost an expectation that you will lose some degree of creativity along with the substances. Well, But it, it sounds like you actually moved into a space where it was highly generative for your creative process to, be, no, to, I, go, to become sober. Oh yeah, no, sober, uh, sobriety saved my life. I've got too many friends that are dead. And I, you know, I've not done it perfectly, but it saved my life. Um, and it made me more creative. You know, when I was doing my, my radio show, I was drinking every night. And so... On the air? Oh, yeah. I mean, part of it is like, you know, I'm on Dude Channel. Yeah. I'm talking John DeVore, you know, drinking. What's up, guys? You Give a call right now. We're talking about, you know, bacon boobs and whatever. Um, so I had a... My programming director was brilliant. And he taught me as best as he could how to be a radio personality. Um, so when you're a programming director and you're in charge of 12 hours of live radio, there's no way with your meetings and your programming and stuff that you're going to be able to listen to what your talent is doing on the air. So the way that you manage your talent is you take a snippet of a show, and then after you get done, you come into the programming director's office, and he plays a random snippet. And maybe it's a brilliant snippet, and he goes, that's great, do it again. Maybe you bomb, and he's like, come on, what are we doing? And so my program director brought me in one day, the night after, I just fucking, I was just drunk on the air. Just fucking shit face. And he put on, he made me listen to myself drunk on the air. It was a fucking disaster, embarrassing. Were you sober when you were listening Fuck back yeah. to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I'm about to apologize, he's, he's pissed, right? He goes, no, 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 no. He's like, we're going to listen to it again. It's so hard for me to listen to my voice, but like just slurring and being blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and he was like, look. And this was one of the many steps to me sobering up. It would take years. But he was like, if I hear this again, you're fired. You're just gone, you know. Uh, and so I learned to be less drunk on the air. Um... The drinking did not make me a better radio host. The drinking helped me poorly manage uh, anxiety and insecurity. Writing is a performance, and it's a performance with a page. And writer's block is similar to stage fright. And if you're experiencing writer's block, what you have to do is step out onto the stage and hope that your talent and your skills take over, but you have to risk bombing. Um, so no, drinking does not make you more creative. Um, it helps you feel like you're managing uh, fear. Yeah. You have a quote in one of your essays that's like, being a young, lonely, insecure white man in America is the best gateway drug. Oh yeah, Or sure. is a gateway drug. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's a gateway drug because uh, 
if you are somebody raised like veal and told if you work hard white guy and you, you, you struggle you're gonna become big and successful and then you get out into the world and you realize oh my god there are all these other different people and they're more talented than I am or they're as talented as I am or they have this or that and uh, oh my god everything sucks you know because there's a lot of stories of guys they become discouraged they fall into booze they become depressed you know, I feel for a lot of angry white guys because, like, you know, they were told, you know, like, um, my career is much different than it would have been uh, 20 years ago because there is more opportunity for more people. And I'm very aware of that, and that's fine. Uh, uh, yes, but the world is filled with uh, broken-hearted white men. <laughs> I heard it described recently that um, privilege isn't the presence of a leg up, it is the absence of obstacles, which is harder to see. Sure. Because it's not there. 100%. And you can't see something that's not there. And I think that's what you're describing. 100%. 100%. Yeah. That, that, that's right. You know, I, I'm a white presenting uh, Latinx man, Latino, if my mom's listening, because the, that generation, she's not going to give up the, the <laughs> gendered uh, language. Um, the only time I've ever been visibly aware of it is when I am in public with my mother and cops are nicer, major D's perk up, floor walkers start following, stop following us, you know, like, and that's the only unique viewpoint biraciality affords is, you know, is for somebody to see how the world treats the most important people in your life if you're not the same color. If it weren't for her, I would not see things. Yeah. John, when does your book come out? Uh, I would have to sell it. So, uh, Sophia, I will let you know if I do it or if I just say fuck it and, and publish it myself. Uh, but I want you to know that your acknowledgement uh, will be pithy uh, but heartfelt. Wonderful. That's the only reason I did it, was to see my name in print. About in the very last page. <laughs> in, the, in the very, very last page, uh, along with Harris. Wonderful. That asshole. <laughs> Harris, we love you. I just, I just, if you all just knew what a gratuitously wrong thing it is to insult such a beautiful man. <laughs> oh, man. Cool. Well. Thank you. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me. I know, it's my pleasure. It was so good to see you. It's been so long. Yeah. John's book, Never Crying a Strip Club, isn't released yet, but you can follow him on Twitter for updates at John DeVore. That's John DeVore, J-O-H-N-D-E-V-O-R-E. The theme music is the song Limes by Little Suspicions. And one tiny correction, Garth actually wears a Reebok tracksuit in Wayne's World, not Adidas. That's it for this episode of The Drawing Board. I'm Sophia Smith, and I will see you next time.